Hi everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of Crimopedia. I'm your host, Allison, and I'm telling you two stories today. I was actually already planning on covering the case of Adam Capay, but I received a suggestion to look into the case of Ashley Smith, and her story just sucked me right in. Together, the story of Ashley Smith and the story of Adam Capay draw profound parallels that speak to the nature of the goals of the Canadian criminal justice system. Both of these individuals, at the time these stories take place, were youths kept in Canadian correctional institutions and both suffered greatly at the hands of a system that prides itself on rehabilitating individuals. But both Adam Capay and Ashley Smith were deprived of their basic human rights. They were stripped away from their identities and left helpless without advocacy for their well-being as individuals while incarcerated. Unfortunately, Ashley Smith would die during her time at the Grand Valley Institution for Women in the province of Ontario at only 19 years old. I will warn you, the first half of today's episode talks about suicide and self-harm, and this entire episode is centered around the conditions of correctional institutions. If that sort of subject matter isn't something you can handle without feeling stressed or anxious, I encourage you to check out one of my other episodes wherever you're listening now, or I'll see you for the next one. With that, let's jump on in. On January 29th of 1988, Ashley Smith was born in the province of New Brunswick in Canada to publicly unknown parents who gave Ashley up for adoption at birth. At only five days old, Ashley was taken in by Cora Lee Smith from Moncton, New Brunswick, and at age three, Ashley was introduced to her father figure, Herbert Gober, who began a relationship with Cora Lee Smith. Coralie also had another daughter, Donna, who was 19 years Ashley's senior, who herself also had a younger son that Ashley became fairly close with. If you go looking for information on this case on your own, you'll find that there is some speculation online as to the potential for Donna actually being Ashley's birth mom and it being some family secret that everyone kept from Ashley, but I don't think it's relevant to this story other than the identity of Ashley's birth mom potentially weighing on her mind. But really, other than that, not to minimize it if it's true, but Coralie, as her effective mother, gave Ashley a well-rounded life. Ashley was said to enjoy camping on the beach, going kayaking, and riding her bicycle around the neighborhood. She was electric, a little bit shy, but once she got to know you, her personality was energetic. She didn't have too many friends in school, but she was spunky and she loved a good laugh if she was close and comfortable with you. When Ashley was 13 years old, in the 8th grade, in 2001, her parents began seeing her act out a little bit more often, which wasn't totally unusual. I think that's around the age where kids start to become a little bit more difficult. But she had begun turning her exuberant energy and channeling it into being disruptive at school and in public, as well as being defiant and overall just acting out more. Once this behavior started, it began snowballing out of control pretty quickly, and before anyone could really get a grasp on why Ashley was acting this way, she found herself in and out of youth court 14 different times before the age of 15 for various offenses such as trespassing and disturbing the peace. Ashley would cause big scenes at the mall, she would play chicken in traffic, 
which if you don't know what the game of chicken is, you essentially wait as long as absolutely possible in front of an oncoming danger like a car or a train until the very last second you make a getaway. Kids play it in traffic, it's so dangerous, but I don't think Ashley fully realized what she was doing. She was just a kid, but she was a kid who was becoming increasingly familiar with law enforcement because of her reckless and defiant behavior. Like night and day, Ashley's behavior could no longer be written off as just puberty running its course. Her behavior ended up becoming so severe that in March of 2002, when Ashley would have been 14 years old, Cora Lee actually hired a psychologist to assess Ashley because her behavior was becoming uncontrollable, and the family, I'm sure, was very concerned for her well-being. Possibly they even speculated she was suffering with some sort of mental illness. That's why they hired the psychologist. But this psychologist found no evidence of mental illness, and instead, Ashley was just assigned a youth worker to help control her behavior at school. In Canada, a child and youth worker provides assistance and counseling, usually to children and teenagers who are struggling with behavioral outbursts and maybe even family issues. Oftentimes, these youth workers are responsible for overseeing the well-being of a child if the child is in foster care or group homes or if they're overall just troubled. However, the presence of this youth worker trying to rein Ashley's behavioral issues in, as well as familial support, didn't really seem to help Ashley. And her behavior ended up becoming a hot topic of conversation for Ashley, her school, and her family. Before long, there was discussions about how often Ashley could reasonably attend school because she was causing so many issues there with staff and other students. And again, things would only escalate from here. In May of the same year, 2002, Ashley followed a teacher home from school and began repeatedly banging on this teacher's front door until the police were called. It's unclear why Ashley did this, but this incident landed her but just one of many suspensions that Ashley would accumulate at school. After graduating grade 8 that year, she was off to high school in September, and within the first few days, Ashley was suspended again for four days, and within the first two months of high school, she had accumulated 17 behavioral incidences and two suspensions on her file. The high school administrators were echoing the same sentiments as those from her elementary school. They said that Ashley was defiant and that it was no secret that they were having difficulties identifying her needs, let alone meeting them. According to the New Brunswick Provincial Ombudsman, Bernard Richard, Ashley was engaging in dramatic forms of bullying, verbal threats, disrespectful attitudes, and non-compliance. And she was clearly going through something, Otherwise, there's no rationale for a teenage girl to be doing anything like this, as well as engaging in physical violence, which was made evident when she was suspended, yet again, for shoving another student into a teacher. And not too long after this incident, Ashley was even banned from her local mall in Moncton. In October of 2002, and not a moment too soon, Ashley's youth caseworker finally decided to get a second opinion on her psychological assessment. Because it had become apparent, and frankly undeniable, that Ashley was acting on uncontrollable impulses. Completely unprovoked, Ashley would shove people, yell at people, call people names, and do irrational things. The neuropsychologist consulted did report that Ashley could be showing signs of nonverbal learning difficulties that may relate to some neurological deficits, but again, there was no definitive diagnosis or even any comments about mental health, and Ashley was unable to receive any tangible recommendations for her well-being. 
and thus her behavior didn't change. In November of 2002, Ashley's mom, Cora Lee, met with the vice principal of Ashley's high school and was informed that not only is Ashley's behavior still out of control, but she's also not passing any of her assignments, if handing them in at all. Later that same month in November, Ashley is back in youth court and receives an 18-month supervised probational sentence with mandatory community service for causing yet another disturbance. The next month in December, Ashley began studying at an alternative high school, which seemed hopeful. They had taken her out of this incredibly overstimulating environment of traditional high school. But before long, there was an incident on the school bus where she became violent with another female passenger and some bus staff. And before long, she was banned from the school bus. I know I mentioned this briefly before, but Ashley didn't have a lot of friends, and as her behavior escalated out of control, that isolation became even more prominent. And it was around this time that Ashley began racking up upwards of $1,600 a month in long-distance charges, making odd phone calls, and spending a lot of time on the internet looking up inappropriate material because she had nothing else to do in her spare time. She was making long distance calls, harassing phone calls, and her mother had to foot the bill for it. To Coralie and Herbert, it seemed like within the blink of an eye, their daughter that they were raising to be young and vibrant, who loved the outdoors, had turned into an angry, recluse young woman who, unknowingly, was embarking on a path that would shake Canadians at their core and expose the ugly head of the so-called rehabilitative criminal justice system. That next spring, in March of 2003, Ashley pled guilty to another disturbance charge, but this time she was sentenced to a youth treatment program for a 34-day assessment at the Pierre Cassier Center. It was here that Ashley would finally receive formal diagnoses of a learning disorder, ADHD, borderline personality disorder, and narcissistic personality traits. It seemed like finally Ashley's mental health was getting the recognition that it needed. And eventually, at some point during her time in and out of these youth centers, Ashley would be prescribed a cocktail of Ritalin, Zoloft, Prozac, and Risperdal. Risperdal being an antipsychotic medication, Zoloft and Prozac being selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are antidepressants, and Ritalin being a stimulant used for ADHD and other hyperreactivity-related disorders. These formal diagnoses and the prescriptions Ashley was given did seem like a step in the right direction, but due to Ashley's complex case and history of, at this point, years of uncontrolled behavioral outbursts with no rehabilitation, Ashley was still acting out, and she was discharged a week early from the youth treatment center because, to no one's surprise, really, the staff were having an exceptionally hard time dealing with her, or at least that's what they said. Howard Sapers, the former federal ombudsman for offenders and correctional investigator, said that this premature discharge was a totally missed opportunity, and it could have been seized to enact some real positive directional change in Ashley before she would permanently end up in the criminal justice system. To the people in Ashley's life, it really seemed like they were taking one step forward and all of a sudden five steps back. After spending the majority of 2003 in and out of court hearings, youth centers, and struggling with something that no professional can quite put their finger on, on October 21st of 2003, while back at home on another probation sentence, Ashley threw some crab apples at a postal worker. 
Ashley had been persuaded by somebody in her neighborhood that their welfare checks were being deliberately held back by the postal service. And so Ashley somehow managed to take it upon herself to correct that for this person. And in her mind, whipping crab apples at the postal worker was the best way that she could effectively rectify this perceived injustice. But this is assault. And due to her history, and after a failed attempt at a placement in some foster homes where Ashley ended up locking herself in a bathroom and threatening self-harm with a broken light bulb, she was finally sentenced to 15 days at the New Brunswick Youth Center, which is about an hour and a half drive north from Moncton on the outskirts of Miramichi, New Brunswick. This 15-day sentence, unbeknownst to Ashley and her family, would quickly spiral into Ashley spending the duration of her life being bounced between correctional facilities in Canada. While in custody at the New Brunswick Youth Center, Ashley would accumulate more than 800 behavioral incidences over three years, time which kept being added onto her sentence with every uncontrollable outburst that she had. The more serious outbursts would land her in solitary confinement, or what the New Brunswick Youth Center called it, therapeutic quiet time. But for Ashley, this segregated concrete cell wasn't very therapeutic at all. Ashley's designated therapeutic quiet cell was 9 feet by 6 feet, equipped with a sink and flush combination sanitary station and a mattress with bedding on the concrete floor where she would be monitored 24-7. The only exception to this was the one hour she was supposed to be let out to shower and go outside. But with every outburst that Ashley had, the punishments began getting so severe that those rights were taken away too, and the correctional officers began taking away her right to choose how much toilet paper she needed or how much deodorant she required, and eventually she wouldn't even be allowed to administer it herself with her own deodorant stick. And Ashley saw this for what it was. She feared the accumulation of increasingly harsh punishments so much and extended time in solitary that she even told a guard that her fear of spending more time in jail made her want to end her own life, but she couldn't control her outbursts. And so she didn't know what to do. And I guess due to the perceived suicide threat, the guards responded to these remarks by putting her back in solitary. Understand that this situation continued to snowball, it continued to spiral, Ashley would accumulate over 150 incidences of actual self-harm during her time at the New Brunswick Youth Center, with her defaulting to using different objects that she could get her hands on to construct a ligature around her own neck. However, instead of keeping her out of therapeutic quiet time, like the Correctional Services of Canada's website says should have been the protocol for someone who is at high risk of self-harm or suicide, she was kept there for prolonged periods of time, even physically constrained at times, in a body immobilizing device called the wrap, at one time being left for three hours sitting in her own urine. Just to give you an example of how Ashley's sentence kept getting extended, in April of 2005, she was ordered to undergo assessment at the Restigouche Hospital almost two hours from Miramichi. Once transported there, the psychiatrist who examined her determined that Ashley was fully capable of understanding her responsibilities and the consequences of her actions. And this psychiatrist report made absolutely no mention of uncontrollable outbursts or how Ashley said she was feeling really at all. 
Because of this psychiatrist's report highlighting that Ashley should in fact be accountable for her own actions, her sentence was extended by another 180 days. But like I mentioned, according to Ashley, she couldn't control her outbursts. From an excerpt in her own journal, she says, quote, I will call my mom before bed and have one more chat. Somehow, I have to let her know that none of this is her fault. I don't know why I'm like this, but I know she didn't do it to me. People say there's nothing wrong with me. Honestly, I think they need to fuck off because they don't know what goes on in my head. Although Ashley's culpability for her own actions certainly is a hot topic of debate even to this day, it's not that hard to see that Ashley Smith was struggling with her mental well-being. But the psychiatrist she was assessed by and the superintendent of the youth center didn't feel that was true. Ashley, to them, was a troubled inmate, and in their eyes, the facility was expending a lot of resources trying to keep her subdued. Sometimes that even meant sedating her against her own will. Due to the complex nature of Ashley's case and her vast behavioral issues, in July of 2006, the superintendent of the youth center made an application under the Youth Criminal Justice Act to have Ashley transferred to an adult facility, considering at this point, she was now 18 years old. Ashley was terrified of this and made it known in court when she tried to fight it, again, by expressing in an affidavit that she cannot control her outbursts, stating, quote, Although I know my record looks bad, I would never intentionally hurt anyone. I'm really scared about the thought of going to an adult facility with dangerous people. It has occupied my mind for a long time. I have wanted to behave to ensure I would not ever go to adult and was sure that I would succeed. And then, right to the face of the presiding judge in court when she was trying to fight this transfer, she said, I don't know what to feel. I'm fucking scared about what's going to happen. Sometimes I think it would be easier to just give up. In Ashley's diary, alongside the numerous entries about her fear of transfer to an adult facility, she outlined nine new charges that she had accumulated, including breaking a window, assault, and destroying the fire-safe sprinkler in her segregated cell. Despite her pleas and very obvious duress, she was transferred to the St. John Regional Correctional Center on October 5th of 2006 and was again immediately placed in segregation. On her first day there, Ashley would refuse a strip search and she was met with threats of a taser. A taser she would actually be threatened with 27 times in seven days and threatened with pepper spray twice. But just because the punishments were getting harsher and started leaving permanent scars, that doesn't mean that Ashley was able to keep her outbursts under control. Several institutional charges were laid on her, and with each came another sentence extension. It started to seem like Ashley had almost embraced the violence at some point, and she was determined to make as much noise as she possibly could when she was going down, likely as an outlet for whatever she was experiencing mentally. Ashley was self-harming constantly, using anything that she could get her hands on to restrict her airway until guards would come and detain her, restrain her, taser her if she didn't comply. And Ashley began fighting back, spitting at guards, and resisting. It became like a game, like I said, embracing the violence. It was evident to her, at least, that she was never going to get the help she needed at the place she was at, and it was also becoming evident that she would never get out of that place. 
because even with each minor incident, her sentence was extended on the basis of bad behavior, and the confrontations with the correctional officers became a daily occurrence. Ashley was constantly being manhandled in her segregated cell, even when she was petrified, even when she was complying. It got to such a tipping point of violence that even though she was segregated for so long and had everything taken away from her, she had access to nothing. When she would refuse a strip search, even though they knew she had nothing on her, she was dogpiled with eight guards while a nurse cut her clothes off with scissors. Now you might be thinking to yourself, it sounds pretty illegal to keep somebody in solitary confinement from the age of 15 to, at this point in her life, being almost 19 years old, and you'd be correct. But for a long time, there was a loophole that was being actively exercised by the Correctional Service of Canada, and that was an automatic reset on solitary confinement time every time an inmate was transferred between facilities. You see, Ashley Smith ended up being transferred 17 times during her incarceration to eight different institutions in three different provinces. In Canada, prisoners are to be held in isolation for absolutely no longer than 60 days. And when that 60-day period is up, their case automatically gets put on the desk of a correctional official to review the reasoning for why the inmate is still segregated. This process leaves a paper trail. It's supposed to keep institutions accountable and prevent people from being in solitary confinement indefinitely. But when the 60 days was up for Ashley, she was off to another institution, where that 60-day cap was automatically set back to zero. In 2007, Ashley was transferred to the Nova Institution in Truro, Nova Scotia, a place she had been before. It was here and now when she began filing grievances. On top of the deodorant and toilet paper restrictions, Ashley was no longer allowed access to undergarments or sanitary products when menstruating. She was also not permitted any writing materials anymore and was only allowed to eat finger foods. When Ashley would ask the guards why she couldn't have more than four squares of toilet paper at any given time, they responded that these were just instructions from management. It's like nobody really knew why Ashley was being treated this way or why she was acting this way, but everybody involved was just going along with what they were told from someone higher up because it was just the easier thing to do. And certainly, trying to keep Ashley calm was not easy, especially trying to calm her down for long enough to have a real conversation and figure out what was going on. But I think that's largely in part because of the years Ashley has spent bearing the business end of people's decisions that were made on her behalf that she had absolutely no say in. The situation had spiraled so dramatically, Ashley was way out, and despite Canadian institutions, in the eyes of the public, having ample resources to accommodate for accessibility and mental well-being, Ashley was not offered any of these resources. And I think this is so true that when you hear something enough times being said about you or told to you, you start to believe it to be true, especially when you're a youth. Ashley was being treated like a lost cause. She was disregarded in a segregated cell with absolutely nothing to keep her mind off of the demons that she was fighting. And so she began to embody that. She began restricting her airway so often, sometimes multiple times a day, and any possible way that she could, to the point where several blood vessels in her face would burst, leaving her permanently discolored and without vision in one eye. Now, it's debated at this time if Ashley was trying to die, but it certainly seems like her regard for her own life had been stripped away from her 
along with her dignity and sanitary privileges, and for all intents and purposes, it really seemed like she was giving up. On September 24th of 2007, a few weeks after Ashley had been transferred to the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario, she was visited by Kim Pate of the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies, which is an organization in Canada that seeks to defend prisoners' rights. She told Kim that she wasn't even permitted to sign her own forms anymore because, again, they withheld writing materials. And at the time of their meeting, something had happened where Ashley had been without a mattress and a blanket for three days. She was sleeping on a concrete floor. Ashley begged Kim to file a formal complaint on her behalf, since, you know, no writing materials, and she wanted, at the very least, legal entitlement to a mattress, a pen, and some hygiene products. But unfortunately for Ashley, this complaint wouldn't even be read until after her death. In October of that year, the Grand Valley Institution held a use-of-force training session, and it was reportedly so that upper management could assist the correctional officers in dealing with Ashley specifically, who had made quite a name for herself being a notoriously difficult inmate, something that Ashley herself didn't even deny. But during the debrief of this session, officers were reportedly told that Ashley's behavior was so far out, so extreme, that they were no longer to enter her cell under any circumstances to help her with anything, even when she was asphyxiating by self-inflicted ligature unless she was not breathing anymore. Officers were then told that if they broke this new protocol, they would be seriously reprimanded. Later that month, on the 16th of October, Ashley expressed interest to a correctional officer about going to a psychiatric hospital for another formal assessment. At this point, she was 19 years old and had spent a good chunk of her life in and out of correctional institutions, youth court, and getting into trouble. It's hard to say if Ashley actually wanted to get help at this time or she just needed a change of scenery, but either way it didn't matter because there were no beds available in any of the institutions nearby. Two days later, due to her remarks and behavior, Ashley was placed on 24-hour suicide watch under direct staff observation. There was some confusion about her suicide risk at this time, but the correctional officers were told to take a wait-and-see approach. Again, being told not to intervene unless she stopped breathing. And only a day later, in the early morning hours of October 19th of 2007, after explicitly telling an officer that she wanted to die, would Ashley begin strangling herself with another ligature that she had constructed. The officer on duty who was supervising Ashley during her suicide watch was watching this happen, but again, had been given explicit instructions from management not to intervene. And so it was only when Ashley fell unconscious and looked to be not breathing anymore that anybody entered her cell. At 6.57 a.m., a guard removed the ligature from Ashley's neck. And at 7.10 a.m., officers and a nurse began performing CPR. And it was a full hour later, at 8.10 a.m., that Ashley Smith was pronounced dead, surrounded by correctional officers who watched her take her own life. Howard Sapers, referring to the post-mortem examination done on Ashley, noted that although her self-injury behaviors were certainly maladaptive, they at least could have been understood in part as a means of alleviating boredom, loneliness, and the desperation she experienced as a result of her constant isolation. But the people in charge of these institutions didn't view her behavior as either maladaptive or as a way to alleviate her mental anguish. 
Her behavior was seen as defiant, and Ashley's short sentence in a youth center for throwing crab apples at a postal worker spiraled into years of isolation, violence, permanent physical and emotional scars, and finally a Canadian family without a daughter who they were hoping would come home someday. The manager of this institution and the warden were fired. The guards in close proximity to Ashley at the time of her death were charged with negligent homicide, although these charges were eventually dropped. The union would argue that the instructions given to the correctional officers by upper management, not the guards' own decision-making, was what prevented them from doing anything to help Ashley or save her life that day. Thankfully, however, the nature of Ashley's suicide, some would argue negligent homicide, was so egregious that it was decided a formal inquest was required to investigate her death. This inquest was famously dubbed the Ashley Smith Inquest, and I highly encourage you to look it up for yourself. But in short, a jury in December of 2013 had returned a verdict that allowed the people who did not respond to Ashley's death in a timely manner to escape by the skin of their teeth criminal and civil liability. However, they did provide 104 recommendations, some of the most meaningful ones thankfully being adopted by the Canadian Correctional Service, on how to make sure something like this absolutely never happens again. Of these recommendations included that Ashley's case be used as a case study to demonstrate how the Canadian Correctional Service failed her. And yeah, they said failed her, and the Canadian Correctional Service agreed that they absolutely failed her. As well, within 72 hours of admission to a federal institution, all female inmates are to be given a psychological evaluation with a self-harm risk assessment, and all inmates are to have access to independent, non-institutionally affiliated patient advocate systems, and lastly, indefinite solitary confinement for prisoners was to be abolished immediately. And that included closing the loophole. The story of Ashley Smith highlights serious flaws in the correctional system of Canada, a system that paints itself as rehabilitative and humane. But frankly, there is a lot of work to be done to undo the centuries of injustice that marginalized people have faced, including those suffering with adverse mental health outcomes. I'm only an undergraduate university student, and I can't even begin to speculate what Ashley must have been going through, but it absolutely astonishes me that not one qualified individual who was non-institutionally affiliated was able to put some legitimate diagnostic criteria on paper with some differential suggestions and a meaningful treatment plan. Only once was Ashley ever given formal diagnoses, and clearly the medication she was on and the treatment she was getting was insufficient. So where were the differential diagnoses? Where was the meaningful treatment plan? This poor young girl was institutionalized and refused access to basic healthcare. There's no reason other than serious neglect by psychological and correctional professionals as to why Ashley Smith, a young girl with a family who absolutely loved her, would live almost half of her entire life in and out of court every few weeks because she had to pay the price for outbursts that she says she couldn't control. Unfortunately, this type of neglect is all too common. Not all prisoners left in segregation with nothing but 24 hours of blinding lights and their own thoughts will die in jail but the adverse consequences of living that reality for any period of time are well documented in history, and many people among us in the community today have seen those effects firsthand. 
It is well known that solitary confinement will exacerbate existing mental health conditions, but the true depths of the long-term effects of solitary confinement are seen best in none other than the case of an Indigenous man from Thunder Bay, Ontario, by the name of Adam Capay. Adam Capay is the eldest of seven children born to parents Glenda Brisket and Ransom Capay of the Laxul First Nation. Both of Adam's maternal grandparents attended residential schools in Canada, which, if you don't know, were government-sponsored religious schools that were created to assimilate Indigenous children into Euro-Canadian culture. At one point, there was over 80 of these institutions in Canada operating at one single time, and each one's sole purpose was to strip Indigenous people of their native languages, cultural affiliations, and frankly, their families and their children. All of this was done with the intentions of ensuring that the next generation of Indigenous Canadians would be whitewashed. If you're unfamiliar with residential schools in Canada, I highly, highly recommend that you do some research on your own. They were just absolutely horrible. Thankfully, the last one was abolished in 1996, which isn't that long ago. And the long-term effects of the trauma inflicted by these schools is intergenerational, with many sufferers of abuse at the hands of the people who ran these institutions having no access to resources for mental health care after the fact, and families have to rebuild their lives after their children were taken away from them in the middle of the night at times and brought back years later if brought back at all, not knowing a word of their own language and being taught to fundamentally reject their own identity. Almost 30 years since the last residential school was finally abolished, directly at the hands of the Canadian government, many Indigenous youths are left to bear the burden of breaking cycles of abuse, addiction, and suffering because their parents and grandparents were forced to endure unimaginable suffering. And because Adam Capay's grandparents did attend these residential schools, his story echoes the same truth. Adam suffered repeated childhood abuse, and in some court documents that I found, he unsurprisingly recalled having nightmares and flashbacks of abuse. Unfortunately, because Indigenous Canadians are often denied basic human rights such as clean drinking water, let alone mental health resources in Canada, a lot of sufferers of trauma from residential schools turn to substance abuse to cope with what they went through. And again, that's what ended up happening in Adam Capay's family as well. In one specific incident that I read about, Adam's own father, while intoxicated, ended up cutting Adam with a knife when he was a very young child and then attempted to elicit Adam to assist in his own suicide. I feel like there's no adjectives that can do these types of complex familial dynamics any justice, but for lack of a better term, the tumultuous nature of Adam's home life resulted in him struggling to break the cycle of intergenerational trauma, and he began drinking at only age seven. By age eight, he was smoking marijuana and inhaling solvents to get high. At age 13, Adam Capay began getting familiar with the criminal justice system in Thunder Bay, Ontario, and his formal education officially ended when he was incarcerated for the first time for assaulting a teacher and a police officer. There are not too many details outlining the nature of this incident, but I thought it would be important to mention because after Adam was incarcerated for the first time, 
He never went back to school at only 13, and after he was let out, Adam was never able to hold down a real job, except for two months in construction that didn't last very long because he showed up to the job site intoxicated. All that Adam knew to be normal in his life was trauma and substance abuse. And so with no formal education and no job prospects, that's the path that he descended on and Adam would become a career criminal. On June 3rd of 2012, Adam was an inmate at the Thunder Bay Correctional Center in Thunder Bay, Ontario, although I was actually unable to find out what for, but like I mentioned, Adam at this point in his life was a career criminal. So one can speculate as to why he was incarcerated, but either way, he was. But he was actually scheduled for release only two months later in August. But on this day, June 3rd, Adam actually got into a physical altercation with a fellow inmate named Sherman Kesis, a Neskantaga First Nation man, and Adam stabbed Sherman twice in the neck with a pencil. Adam was only 19 years old at this time, and in that moment, when he decided to sneak up behind Sherman Kesis and stab him twice in the neck, he purposefully caused the untimely and violent death of 34-year-old Sherman Kesis. Sherman was known as a loving, kind man, a great father, and a valued member of his community, and his family was obviously devastated. They lost a father, a close friend, someone with a smile full of life. Due to Adam's incredibly selfish decision, he was undoubtedly charged with first-degree murder without hesitation by the court. But while Adam would await trial, he would serve approximately four and a half years in administrative solitary confinement in the Thunder Bay Correctional Center beginning on June 4th of 2012 and ending on December 6th of 2016. During his 1,647-day confinement, Adam would spend his days in a plexiglass cell housed in one of the five blocks in the basement of the Thunder Bay Institution. On two separate occasions, he was also transferred to the Kenora Institution in Kenora, Ontario, although it is unclear if these transfers were happening for the same reason that they were happening in the Ashley Smith case, for extension of solitary time and bypassing a paper trail. But in any case, out of the 1,647 days he spent in solitary, 1,358 of those were spent in the plexiglass cell where the lights were on 24 hours a day. Of the 1,358 days spent under artificial light for 24 hours every day, 237 of them were spent without access to any sanitary services. In Block 10 of the Thunder Bay Correctional Center, there was no shower. The only time Adam Capay spent in solitary confinement being able to discern night and day was a stretch of 53 days in a segregated block where the lights were turned off at night, but the rest of the time, like I mentioned, the lights were kept on every hour or on some cell blocks only dimmed slightly at night. Adam Capay's offender rating sheet which is a risk assessment guide, instructed the correctional officers not to talk to him, but it wasn't for lack of Adam trying, because over time he would try to engage with the correctional officers, but they were given clear instructions not to give him the time of day. Of the 1,647 days spent in solitary, Adam was only allowed outside in the yard, still segregated, 108 times, and was also denied that access another 72 times when he asked for it. As well, neither the Thunder Bay Correctional Center or the Kenora Institution from 2012 to 2015 had any indigenous services, 
and Adam would only be visited by a native inmate liaison officer for the very first time in 2016 after four years in solitary confinement at the Thunder Bay Center. But these liaison visits really only started happening after the Chief Commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, Renu Mantain, visited Adam. Mantain was appointed the position of Chief Commissioner in October of 2015, and in March of the following year, in 2016, she requested information about the number of prisoners admitted into segregation in each of Ontario's jails, as well as the rationale for their admission and the complete duration of their time in solitary. Later in 2016, she was set to tour the Thunder Bay Correctional Center as she was making her rounds of the jails in Canada, so to speak. These tours were advertised on social media, which is what caught the attention of correctional officer Michael Lundy at the Thunder Bay Institution. Michael Lundy actually reached out to Mantain personally and requested that they meet privately before she embarks on her formal tour of the facility. She agreed, and during their meeting, she asked Lundy if there was anything in particular that she should make a point of looking into while she was there, which is when he brought up the circumstances of inmate Adam Capay. After Lundy spent some time divulging the circumstances of Adam Capay's solitary confinement, Mantain recalled feeling reluctant to even believe Lundy initially because the claims he was making about Adam Capay being in solitary confinement for four and a half years were absurd. The data that I mentioned earlier that she summoned in 2016 about inmates in segregation in Canada told her that the longest time anyone on record had ever been in segregation was only two and a half years. So who's lying? She made a note of this despite any hesitancy and continued on with her plan to tour the Thunder Bay facility, thankfully. When she got there, she embarked on the formal tour, but afterwards, she met with a handful of individual inmates who were cherry-picked by the native inmate liaison officer, but she recalled that none of those inmates really had anything of significance to say, and their stories weren't necessarily matching up with what Michael Lundy was saying about the overall condition of the Thunder Bay Correctional Center. It was then when she turned to the group of officials and administrators that she was touring the prison with, and she asked to speak to Adam Capay. She remarked later in court how she was met with surprised faces and silence, and then was told that Adam just didn't really like talking to people. But Manhain didn't buy it, and she persisted. And so when the social worker of the group, Alex Sherba, who accompanied the tour, came back after leaving, presumably to go inform Adam of his visitor, Manhain was told that he would in fact speak with her. As the chief commissioner walked down a set of concrete stairs into a mid-level basement, she recalled being in shock. And when she finally laid eyes on Adam, she said it was unlike anything she had ever experienced before. I think her level of shock is extremely telling. As someone who is appointed Chief Commissioner of Ontario Human Rights, it is not far-fetched at all to think that in her career, she had certainly seen some appalling circumstances. But when she recalled these details later in court, she could hardly hold back her emotions. When she spoke to Adam, she said that he could hardly speak back to her. He was talking very slowly, and it was clear that he was struggling with his words, which he did apologize for the best way he could, and he tried to explain that he hadn't done much talking to anyone in the last almost half of a decade. 
Adam did his best to speak candidly with Mantaine about the reasoning for his incarceration and what he had done to 34-year-old Sherman Kesis, but he couldn't recall the dates very well because if you remember, for most of his sentence in solitary, the artificial lights had been kept on inside of his cell 24 hours a day, and he was in a basement with no windows. It was next to impossible to distinguish day versus night, with the only marker of time being the scheduled meals which he was given in his cell to eat alone. Speaking of food, Capet also told her that he was not getting enough of it, and that as a result of all of these combined circumstances, he had been attempting to self-harm lately. After a lengthy conversation where Adam tried his best to divulge the circumstances of his quality of life over the last four and a half years, Mantaine was pissed. She recalled the whole encounter being a surreal experience, and she left very angry after telling Adam that she would do whatever she could within her power to help him. This, again, is a really interesting detail, and I think it speaks to the egregious circumstances of Adam's existence at the hands of Canada's correctional system, because it is absolutely not at all her job to take on individual cases and advocate for inmate justice on an individual basis, but she just felt so compelled to do so. When Chief Commissioner Mantaine rejoined the main tour group after speaking with Adam, she openly recalled to the group that she had just met an inmate who was claiming to have been in solitary confinement for the last four and a half years. As she describes, without missing a beat, the Deputy Director of Northern Regional Institutional Services, Douglas Houghton, replied, sounds about right. She was so appalled that when she returned to her office in Toronto, Ontario, she immediately got the ball rolling trying to figure out what the hell was going on at the Thunder Bay Correctional Center. She admitted that she did have some doubts about the accuracy of Adam's claims, maybe because of his criminal history or maybe because she just couldn't fathom that a human being was being so severely neglected by a provincial correctional institution. There was just no way that someone's case had been this badly mismanaged by the Canadian criminal justice system, right? With these doubts in mind, but still curious and passionate about getting to the bottom of the situation, Mandhane drafted a letter to the former Minister of Community Safety and Correctional Services in Ontario, Minister Orizietti, where she fleshed out the raw facts of what she had been told about Adam Capay, by himself and by Michael Lundy. She outlined that, to the best of her knowledge, Adam Capay had been in continuous isolation since June of 2012, and at the time of writing the letter, it was 2016. To her knowledge, he was also being housed in the basement of the jail, confined to a plexiglass see-through cell with no privacy, no natural sunlight, no air circulation, and purposefully limited human interaction. The lights in his cell were on 24-7, seven days a week, and he was not being provided any meaningful or even regular access to mental health treatments or indigenous services. It turns out that the only thing that she outlined in her letter that was technically incorrect, and I say incorrect with air quotes, was that Adam's cell technically wasn't in the basement of the institution, it just happened to be a windowless concrete underground room that was accessed by a downward staircase. But according to the Thunder Bay Correctional Center, it's not a basement. Under the Ministry of Correctional Services Act, an inmate can be placed under administrative segregation for four reasons. 
the opinion of the superintendent of the jail is that the inmate needs protection, or the other people in the jail need to be protected from the inmate, or the inmate has committed a serious offense, or finally, if the inmate asks to be placed in there. Furthermore, if an inmate is placed under administrative segregation under the third clause because they did something really bad, like Adam Capay did, the superintendent must conduct a preliminary review of the inmate's case within 24 hours of them being in solitary. As well, the superintendent is supposed to review the circumstances of each inmate placed in segregation at least once every five days to determine whether or not they still need to be there. And if that period exceeds more than 30 days, the superintendent then has to answer to the Minister of Community Safety and Correctional Services in Ontario as to why the inmate needs to be segregated. And look, I'm not throwing anyone in particular under the bus because the circumstances of Adam Capay spending 1,647 days in solitary confinement is a systemic failure. However, do I believe that in that 1,647 day period, the superintendent reviewed Adam's case a minimum of 329 times? Not really. I believe even less that the minister heard about Adam's case from the superintendent 55 times over that period. But thankfully, the selfless advocacy of Michael Lundy and the persistence of Chief Commissioner Mantain would set in motion a series of events that would allow Adam to fight the system right back. After some legal counsel, Adam Capay was allowed to put forth an argument in court about how the conditions of his detainment constituted cruel and unusual punishment and thus violated his charter rights. If you're American, it's, for all intents and purposes, here analogous to the Constitution. His lawyer further argued that the effects of segregation severely compromised Adam's ability to conduct regular life-maintaining activities, let alone conduct a defense in court for the trial that he waited four and a half years to have. Yeah, in case you forgot, he was in solitary awaiting trial. He, of course, did cause the deliberate death of Sherman Kesis, and nobody argues that, but technically, Adam wasn't even found guilty yet. In Canada, one of the criteria that can be met in order for someone to be found unfit to stand trial is their inability to conduct a defense at any point during the proceedings on account of a mental disorder. Adam Capay couldn't even string together connected English prose for the chief commissioner, who was the only person in the world it seemed like who wanted to listen to him, and so there were serious doubts about his ability to conduct a legitimate defense for the charges of first-degree murder. Due to all of this compounded with the completely unknown long-lasting effects that Adam would suffer from his time in solitary, Adam and his lawyer were asking for a stay of all charges on account of his charter rights being violated. During those proceedings, a number of expert witnesses testified for the defense who were successfully able to outline from start to finish exactly how Adam was let down by the system along every step of the way. Professor Michael Jackson from the University of British Columbia testified that Adam's case file contained absolutely no Gladue analysis whatsoever. If you're American, or if you're just unfamiliar with the Canadian legal system, a Gladue report is a report that can be requested to provide analysis of the background information and factors that may serve to mitigate or reduce the culpability of an Indigenous offender if they've committed a crime. 
Gladue reports can include issues related to substance abuse, poverty, exposure to childhood abuse, loss of identity, cultural, ancestral knowledge, attendance at residential schools, etc. Like I mentioned before, the trauma passed down from generation to generation that was single-handedly started by the Canadian government's residential schools in order to squash Indigenous culture have caused thousands of Indigenous Canadians irreparable harm. A Gladue report is sort of like a little bit of restorative justice, a pass in some ways for some crimes, but not really because it's not like Indigenous offenders are underrepresented in the criminal justice system because it's quite the opposite. But it's important to recognize that Adam's life circumstances perpetuated by the trauma that was put onto his grandparents, which was then put onto his parents, which was then put onto him because of the Canadian government, likely had everything to do with determining his path in life. And maybe Maybe a Gladue analysis at any point during Adam's incarceration may have served to mitigate some of that criminal culpability and instead gotten him some of the indigenous or mental health services that he needed. Adam's case file didn't have a Gladue report attached to it, and so none of the trauma that he endured in his life that determined his path would ever serve to mitigate the circumstances of him spending four and a half years in solitary confinement. Professor Stephen Troop of International Law and the Vice Chancellor at the University of Cambridge testified that the prolonged segregation of Adam was, quote, cruel, inhumane, and degrading. As well, as someone whose career specialty has been in law and human rights, he stated that prolonged periods of confinement with no natural light and constant blinding artificial light was also inhumane in the eyes of international law. Professor Kelly Hannah Moffat from the University of Toronto, who actually also testified during the Ashley Smith inquest, pointed to the vast body of literature that outlined the devastatingly negative effects of segregation on prisoners. She spoke to the fact that segregation can often bring up previously undetected mental health disorders, and that inmates can become re-traumatized in solitary as their isolation can trigger emotions from the past. Dr. John Bradford from the University of Ottawa agreed, coining the emotional triggers and development of mental illness in segregation as segregation psychosis or jail psychosis. Hannah Moffat also said that Adam's time in segregation far exceeds long-term segregation, and it's much more excessive than anything she has ever seen, akin to some of the most egregious circumstances that you would even see compared to the supermax prisons in the United States. After testimony from Renu Mantain, the Chief Commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, all of the details that I fleshed out for you at the beginning of this story about the circumstances of his solitary confinement were fleshed out to the court. And her testimony was very compelling. Again, like I mentioned before, she is absolutely not responsible for an inmate's well-being on an individual basis. It is her job to advocate for the well-being of inmates as a whole. But again, she felt so compelled to step in personally and take care of this. The proceedings concluded with the acknowledgement that Adam Capay was facing first-degree murder, which is in fact the worst charge that anyone can acquire in Canada, and it's without a single doubt that the family of Sherman Kesis wanted justice to be served for this. Adam Capay selfishly took the life of a 34-year-old man who was hopeful to get out of prison and be with his family. 
However, due to the nature of his time in solitary, the violations to Adam's Section 7 and Section 12 Charter rights, again, analogous to the Constitution, which were the right to life, liberty, and security, and the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment, respectively, had been seriously and systemically violated. It was acknowledged that the long-term effects of Adam's segregation were completely unknown, but likely would persist over time. And with that, Justice John S. Frigeau stayed the charges of first-degree murder, stating that the conditions of his detainment did violate his rights and that his right to a fair trial was in fact compromised due to his mental state after the fact. After all that, Adam Capay was released from prison without ever facing trial for the murder of Sherman Kesis on January 28th of 2019 after spending 1,647 days in solitary. I wanted to speak a little bit to the nature of these stories that I told today. I understand from my research into Adam Capay that he has in fact still maintained his status as a career criminal and most recently was arrested for sexual assault charges in 2019. In no way does what happened to him in solitary confinement excuse his violent behavior, and in no way does it excuse what happened to Sherman Kesis. There are no buts about that either. Adam Capay single-handedly inflicted irreversible pain onto multiple families, but at the heart of it all is the system. When I was suggested to cover the case of Ashley Smith, the person who suggested it to me said something to the effect of, I'm not sure if you're into covering anything systemic, but I think that this is a story that really needs to be told. I couldn't help but agree. It doesn't matter that Ashley Smith was troubled or that she engaged in destructive or self-harming behavior. It doesn't absolve the correctional institutions she was housed in from maintaining her life in a meaningful way, especially when they have abundant resources to do so. In the same way, Adam's heinous crimes and deplorable behavior against people he hurt does not absolve the system from being liable for his well-being. There is an increasingly large body of research that exists to explicitly outline how harsh punishments such as solitary confinement and physical constraints like the RAP do not reduce rates of reoffending. they do not cure inmate mental health disorders, and they are simply not effective. I can't help but think to myself that all either of these individuals ever needed was somebody like the chief commissioner who used her voice and power to turn the system on its head for the greater good. It certainly saved Adam's life, and many officials have since called Ashley Smith's death equally as preventable, with most notably Howard Sapers, the former federal ombudsman, writing a whole book about Ashley's case called A Preventable Death. Indigenous people are overrepresented in Canada's criminal justice system. That is absolutely no secret. And the same goes for people who suffer with mental illnesses. There is a lot more that can be done to protect people in these circumstances. Unfortunately, although Adam and Ashley's cases are incredibly hard to get through and hard to stomach, they are not uncommon. Vulnerable inmates are denied access to basic human rights every day in Canada and the United States. But what baffles me about being Canadian myself is that the Canadian criminal justice system speaks so much to the importance of rehabilitation. And all of the literature out there says that harsh punishments are not the way to rehabilitate people. And so it truly begs the questions of what are the fundamental goals of incarceration in Canada? And what are the goals of solitary confinement? 
And finally, do those goals outweigh the historically documented long-term adverse effects of incarceration and solitary confinement? Personally, I don't have the answer. I'm just here to tell you the stories. And with that, I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. It was certainly a hard one to get through and a little bit different, but the reason I started this podcast was to tell the stories that I feel like need to be heard. And so if you're liking these episodes, feel free to head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and maybe a comment. I do read them. And I try to answer every DM that I get on Instagram at crimopediapod. Again, today's case was in part suggested to me, and so if you have a story in mind that you really want to hear featured on the show, then please do use my case suggestion form on my website at crimopediapod.ca. I can't thank everybody enough for the continued support, and I hope to see you back here next time for the next episode. For this case in particular, I'll be really interested to hear your guys' feedback and see what you have to say about all of this. But until next time, I'll talk to you guys soon. Take care, everyone. Mm -hmm.